parousia, the coming of Christ, which refers to his first coming and also to his second coming. The advent of our Lord. Take your Bibles, please open to 1 John. I've concentrated so far in our Advent season primarily on this epistle because he's dealing with the subject of the incarnation of Christ and its importance. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. John writes in 1 John 5 verse 20 and that's the conclusion, his concluding thoughts. And the reason he can know that as a fact is because of what we studied last week. And that is the first four verses of chapter 1. He had seen, we, and I take that as the apostles and those who were alive during Christ's ministry and also who viewed his resurrection as a human being, we handled of the word of life. They touched him. They saw him. Uh, they associated with him. And he is the life that has been manifest. He has come into the world. And in that context, in the first four verses, it was so that we could have fellowship with one another and also fellowship with the Father and His Son in order that our joy might be full. The incarnation of Christ brings absolute joy and fulfillment in those who are His followers. There are those, however, in that first century, it's believed that John is writing this particular epistle, maybe A.D. 85, uh, Dr. Ryrie says A.D. 90. We don't know exactly the date, but it's close to the end of the first century, which indicates that the church had to deal with festering heresies that were infiltrating the church. You would think, well, can't they keep things straight? Can't they keep things on track? Well, I think it's the goal and desire of the apostles, the goal and desire of the elders and pastors and leaders and bishops of the early church to keep it on track. But Paul, as you remember, warned the Ephesian elders that there would be those who would rise up out of their own midst who would bring in damnable heresies and false teaching and there would be wolves without who would attempt to devour them and that's what wolves do they attempt to devour the sheep and who is easier prey than than sheep and they come many times disguised in sheep's clothing and that is, they look like us, they kind of walk like us, but it doesn't tell you what's in their sinister hearts. They're bringing damnable heresies. 
life-threatening, that is spiritual life-threatening, heresies into the church. And so in the chapter we look at this morning, dealing with this whole subject of the incarnation, the Apostle John addresses quite forthrightly and quite clearly in this passage of Scripture. Apologist acquaintance of mine, James White, some of you are familiar with his name. He has a ministry up in Phoenix uh, called Alpha and Omega. That's used of other ministries I've heard throughout my Christian experience, but he's an apologist for the truth. He has a podcast he calls The Dividing Line, The Dividing Line. And that is, there is a dividing line. There's a watershed between truth and error. And it's a very fine line a lot of times. It's not broad, but we need wisdom in knowing when we've crossed that line into error. And this text presents us with a dividing line, so to speak. over which you cannot walk or transgress. I remember he hearing Adrian Rogers in one of his reels or shorts, they call them, addressing the, the subject of the incarnation or more particularly, uh, the doctrine of Christ. And he said, when you have people come to your door, Jehovah's Witnesses or whether they're Mormons or something, what you need specifically to know is what they believe about Jesus Christ. That's what you want to know. That is a line of demarcation. That is a watershed doctrine that divides us from those who hold error. There, there is repeated and I always look for repetition in passages, even if it's a couple things that are repeated to make a point. And one thing that is repeated throughout this text of Scripture is the preposition of that's in, in our text. It's from the Greek word ek. Or, and in, as it's used here, mostly it would be source. And you look at verse 1 test the spirits he says because or whether whether they are of God and then in verse 2 he says by this you shall know the spirit of God again that preposition at the end of the verse it says every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So there is that marker that we're interested in, whether there are teachers who are of God or they're not of God. Again, verse 3, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is, and then we have the preposition again, the spirit, you notice it's in italics, and the, the translators felt that it was necessary to put in to convey the meaning of what John, but it's not in the original text. 
And what it is saying is, is in effect, that those who do not confess Jesus coming in the flesh, this is of the Antichrist. This is of the Antichrist. In other words, it finds its origin in that spirit, and I think that's right, the spirit of Antichrist. And then in verse 4, again the preposition, now addressing his readers, his audience, and by extension, us here in this auditorium, hopefully, he writes to them, you are of God. In other words, your, your source of existence as a child of God is from him. That's where you find your source of God. And then in contrast, he says, they are of the cosmos. They are of the world. And that is this unregenerate world that is driven by a satanic philosophy and satanic control. It has the spirit of Antichrist as its animating force. That's, that's what's prevalent. That's what's existing in the world. They are of the world, therefore... This is his, uh, it's actually a prepositional phrase, and it could be translated on account of this. And it's not wrong to translate it, therefore, on account of this, because they are of the world, they speak of the world. That's where they draw their understanding. That's where they draw their world view. And even though they may pepper it with Christian phraseology, their system, their worldview finds its genesis and origin in this godless age. And as a result, he says, and the world listens. It hears them. And that's what they're tuned into. That's where their radars are focused picking up what these false teachers and antichrists have to say. And then he moves from you, verse 4, they, verse 6, we. And that is the group he's referred to, or referring back in chapter 1, verse 1. We, that which was from the beginning, we have handled, we have touched, we have beheld him. We, that group of apostles, those, that group of, of men through whom the Lord said in his upper room disc, disc, that when he sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he would guide them into all truth. And so when the apostle Paul, who saw the living Christ on the road to Damascus and God appointed him to be a minister to the Gentiles but not neglect the Jews he went to the Jews first and to the Gentiles second John follower of our Lord 
Mark, a follower of our Lord, Luke, a follower of our Lord, Matthew, a follower of our Lord, as they wrote their volumes of his life and Paul writing the explanation of his life and John writing these epistles and the apostle Peter also. We, he says, we are of God. We find our genesis, our origin, our commission. We find it in God. And he who knows God listens to us. He hears us. He hears us. You wonder sometimes why people don't hear? Why the word of God doesn't make sense to them? It's because they're not tuned in. They're not plugged in to the divine. And it can't make sense to them. That's why in that last two verses, God has given us understanding. You get that? That's why we listen. He's given us that component of wisdom that the world does not have. And so our ears perk up at truth. Got it? Our, hear, our ears are in tune when we read it, when we hear it preached. We say, that's, that's God. That's truth. That's orthodoxy. And his concern here with these heretical groups, the Docetus and the Corinthians, is with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If he did not come in the flesh, we have no Savior. That's it. If he's not the God-man, Christianity collapses. It becomes a house of cards. And that's what all these man-made religions are, are a house of cards. Because eventually they're going to crumble. Eventually they're going to fall apart. Under the weight of their own heresy. Their own apostasy. Sadly. But we are not. Of the wicked one. The whole world lies in the wicked one. But we are not of the wicked. We are not in the world. God has delivered it, delivered us out of it, out of it. And in chapter two, we have an anointing. It's kind of a veiled way, a figurative way of referring to the Spirit. We have the anointing of the Spirit within us. And thank God for that. That makes all the difference in the world. That's the reality. So I've just given you a, a quick overview of this test. And you can see the repeated preposition there. Of God, of God, not of God. They are of the world. They're followers of Antichrist. They are of the spirit of Antichrist. And so you see there's this clear line of demarcation. And the true test as a result of this passage, the true test of Orthodox Christianity is affirming the incarnation of the Son of God. And that's what last century, the early part of the 19th century, there was 
a group of fundamentalists who were getting tired of trying to function in these apostate denominations. And so they came out of them and they formulated fundamentals of the faith. One of the fundamentals of the faith was the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus Christ. That's humanity and deity brought together. Virgin birth, if you don't believe that, that fundamental foundation of our faith, you're not a believer. And now, fundamentalism has fallen on bad times. It's developed in some ways because of its harshness, uh, you know, a bad reputation. There are those, however, arose around the end of the 1940s and into the early 50s, what were called new evangelicals, who wanted to soften it and, and to make Christianity more pal palatable to academia. They wanted to be embraced, essentially, by the world. They wanted their approval. They wanted their endorsement. And so a whole system, a whole movement emerged. And it's morphed into something far worse than it started. Its intentions may have been good and altruistic. But because the moment you want to rub shoulders with, with wolves in sheep's clothing, guess what? They're going to devour you. Oh, they love your tolerance. But who, who hurts in the, in, in the midst of it? And so in these denominations, on one side, you had a very extreme liberal progressive group. And then on the other end, you had the fundamentalists. And then you have what was referred to as the wishy-washy middle. They just wanted peace in the denomination. And so when they would have meetings together, they wanted to keep unity. So they'd vote with the progressives, and yet they held at least on paper and intellectually to the beliefs of the fundamentalists. But they weren't willing to fight and stand for it. Um, where would you put John? He's not wishy-washy. Where would you put Paul? He's not wishy-washy about it. They understood. They understood. That's why he, Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians. If an angel or any other being present to you another gospel which I have not preached to you, let him be accursed. That's very strong language, anathema. So it is a line of demarcation. It's fashionable today to be tolerant. Tolerant. Um... And sadly, it's affected the church with what were formerly, at least, what I grew, grew up with and where I trained, the institutions in which I, I trained. I, you know, I can't, I can't support the seminary from which I graduated, Dallas Seminary. Although it, it comes across as quasi-evangelical, and yet they embrace this wokeism. This progressivism. 
when I was up in Illinois, I had the opportunity to meet the pastor's father, Tommy Ice, who was associate of Tim LaHaye and headed up his pre-tribulation perspectives and pre-tribulation or organization. I got to talking with him because we're both Dallas graduates. He graduated in 81. I graduated in 76. And he filled me in on something that uh, it just, I didn't fall on the floor, but figuratively speaking, it floored me. He said, I, I was told, and I asked reliable sources, and he believed that, it, that they had a couple staff members or faculty, I forget which it was, faculty me members who were part of Antifa. From my seminary? Part of Antifa? I don't know what they did with that. But I had questions for a long time about that. It makes me appreciate the Bible college I've gone to because they've made, remained faithful, as far as I can tell, to the faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. That's Faith Baptist Bible College. I give it a plug. Faith Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa, which is a suburb of Des Moines. But the church has fallen on hard times. Those... <clears throat> Organizations like Legionnaire, uh, they hired LifeWay, who does uh, survey work, have, have, have sent out surveys and, and called people, especially in uh, Christendom or Christianity. And they pointed out in this one survey where believers have strayed in their theology. Number one on the list was people that have... People in this, do people have the ability to turn God on their own initiative? 82% of the people who answered that question agree with that. 74% agreed with this statement individuals must contribute to their own salvation. Uh, that rules out grace, I guarantee you. Rules out grace. 71% believe Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. No. Definitely not. He's the eternal God. 65% believe God knows all that happens but doesn't determine all that happens. 56%, a majority, a bare majority, believe the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. That's, that's wrong. The Spirit is the third member of the triune Godhead, each having their own function in the economy of the Godhead. 39% agree with this, my good deeds help earn my place in heaven. No. They don't earn anything. And lastly, 37% agree God will always reward faith with material blessings. That's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. That's where we've drifted. And that's where we are. And so John has to come along like the other apostles. And the reason their letters had to be written is in most instances to, direct, to address error 
or heresy of some sort or another, or a problem. And so in verse 1, I suggest to you that if we're going to maintain, and John suggests this, I believe, there must be a thorough examination of the spirits. Not everybody who uses Christian lingo, not everybody who puts on the guise and the robes of Christianity, not everybody who walks into a church building, not everybody who walks into a pulpit to proclaim truth is orthodox. Is orthodox. And that, and that means straight, not wavering to the essentials of the faith. And so we first of all have to evaluate the spirits. We have to evaluate them. That's what he says. And notice he prefaces it here with a command. Do not. Do not. Present active. Do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. On the one hand, we are not to be cynical. And that is, my way is the highway, I'm right on everything, and we're cynical and, uh, about, about everybody else's belief. Somebody who uh, is, doesn't cross their T's, dot their I's the way we do is, is, is gone for certain. Yet we are to be what one writer called have healthy skepticism. A healthy skepticism. Look with me back at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second letter or epistle, in both of which... I stir up your minds, and that is this thinking apparatus, by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commands of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Knowing that this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. He warns them about those who deny, verse 4, the promise of his coming. And he addresses that, that whole subject. So it's not new. Scoffers, those who are antagonist against the Christian faith. And so when you listen to somebody on a live stream, when you listen to somebody on a tape, when you watch a DVD, when you watch a video presentation, come with it with healthy skepticism. You don't buy everything. But in order to do that, you have to be trained in the truth. 
And most importantly, you have to have the Spirit of God. That's one of the defining things in this whole process of being able to stand against error. If it doesn't sound right, it probably isn't. <laughs> That's what all these schemes you hear about on the internet and on TV and scuff, stuff like that. All of us, to a degree, approach them with, with a measure of skepticism. And we investigate first before we buy, at least I've learned that, I hope I continue to learn that. And it's the same is true in the religious panorama, the religious smorgasbord, smorgasbord, the cafeteria of life. Do not believe. And the, the way this is stating, according to A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar from Southern Seminary in the 19th century, he says the emphasis of this present tense, which is stated with a negative, and he's saying, stop. Stop believing every spirit. The reason this had to be in, addressed in the first place is because there were some, and apparently a significant amount, maybe not a majority, but a sizable minority, were buying into this stuff. It sounded good. Sounded good. And you know what happens in those situations? If you begin to embrace that which is deceitful, you become deceived yourself. You, you have to deal with a sort of a spirit of deception that you have, have to exercise, so to speak. Evaluate the spirit, every spirit. Do not believe. Examine his but in contrast Test the spirits, whether they are of God. Evaluate what, what's because these spirits are the forces that are animating these false teachers. And they can be evil spirits, they can be demons. If they're spouting error, if they're spouting apostasy, you can just about mark it down that there is some evil force behind the scenes influencing them in the area of deception at which they are very skilled. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Test all things, hold fast to what is good. Again, he writes in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world. That is, don't let this world press you into its mold. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. That's our word. Examine. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The mind has to be renewed. It's renewed in the context of our exposure to the Word of God and being accountable to the elders and leaders of the church for clarity. To the Corinthians, he wrote to them about whom he had questions concerning their faith. He says, examine yourselves, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. And here's a word, test yourselves. 
Put yourself to the test. Do you not know yourselves? Is Jesus Christ in you unless you indeed are disqualified? You failed the test. This word is translated in Ephesians 5.10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. In other words, as you're looking at your life, what you do and what you believe, you have to examine it in the light of not what pleases you, but is this pleasing to the Lord? Is this truth? Paul warned Timothy that the days would come where people would have itching ears. They want to hear what they want to hear. That's not God's, God's way. Peter in his second epistle warns them about false prophets and false teachers. That's what we have here. Test the spirits. Put them to the test of orthodoxy. Examine everything in light of the clear revelation that God gives us into his word. It'll be safe for you, safe for your family, safe for the church. One theologian, Cornelius Plannington, said, Part of the equipment we need for life in a secular setting is the ability to discern spirits. It takes advanced Christian training to learn to tell the difference between, say, patriotism and chauvinism, between piety that is superficial and piety that is profound, between the mind of humanism and the mind of Christ. Trying to do this in a secular college is like trying to diet at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Not easy. Not easy. No one ever said it was. So evaluate. Stop believing. People take tolerance as, as an expression of Christian love. There are some times where we do need to tone down and maybe come to a consensus. And the reason why we need to is because, verse 1, he says, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. This is the plain reality. They come to you in a religious garb. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second epistle, they even appear, well, as angels of light, the false apostles. They appear to be so good. The existence Many, in John's day, many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Moses warned the people of God in the Old Testament to beware. When a false prophet, when a prophet comes to you and even predicts what is true, God is using that to test you. If it goes contrary to what you know in the revealed Torah, you don't embrace it. Even he with hocus pocus gives you a sign, so to speak. And I would say that this whole charismatic movement, by and large, is a bunch of hocus pocus and people are just enthralled and enamored with it. And you need to get to the core of it in your understanding. I like what one writer said. He said, the devil sometimes speaks the truth. <laughs> And that, that is, he's, he's going to put a little truth in with the error so that, oh, yeah, that sounds good. It's got to be right. But that's one of his stratagems, Satan's, his methods, what he uses. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians again, we know his strategies. We know Satan's strategies. You have to be familiar with the enemy. That's what makes for a good combat general. He knows and can anticipate his enemy's actions on the battlefield. Secondly, the criteria for orthodoxy is an authentic affirmation about Jesus incarnation. Now there's more to the Christian faith than this. So we know that he's addressing a particular heresy that was prevalent in his time. And they were pushing it apparently successfully with full force and some were embracing it. And, and John says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's get the horse back into the corral. You're running wild. By this you know. It deals with the whole subject of what's called epistemology or knowledge. What is the basis of our knowledge and what can we know and how can we know it? We know this because it's revealed to us. The virgin birth. That's the vehicle of the incarnation of the Son of God. He was truly man, and yet truly God, clothed in flesh. This is how you know, in unequivocal language, this is how you know the Spirit of God. If He is at work in the teacher, if he's at work in the prophet, if he's at work in the preacher, this is how you know. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come into the flesh, you can mark it down, put it in your register, he is of God. Got it? Okay. I think his readers did. There's nothing veiled in what he says. And on the other hand, verse 3, you have to test this true confession against a false 
confession. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's why he closes his epistle in that verse that we probably should have started it on it later. Has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And when he referred to the son of God has come. That's the incarnation. That was his advent into the world. He does not confess Jesus Christ has come to the flesh. He's not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. This is the spirit of opposition. Because the anti meant, can mean against. In some instances it can mean in the place of, and that is true of the final Antichrist. Both are true. He is opposed to the true Christ and he presents himself as a substitute Christ, that he is the Messiah. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. In other words, it's, it's manifestation, its influence, its impact is then and now as John is writing at the close of the first century. And it's, it's still here today. Still here today. The spirit of Antichrist. I move on quickly, hasten on in our text. To verses 4 through 6. Our last major point. This truth of the incarnation, the advent of our Christ into this world, it is not something he took upon himself. It is something that he was constitutionally, that is flesh. He received it by divine plan. It's the watershed for God's people, verses 4 through 6. And verse 4 gives us this, the first sub-point. The saints are victorious over these false spirits. You're a saint, I'm a saint. Not that I always live saintly, but we are saints. That word is used more in the New Testament than any other word to refer to those who are followers of Jesus in the epistles. Saints, you're a saint. I'm a saint. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. A follower of Jesus Christ. I am one of his elect. And as a result, we are victorious. You are of God, little children. Very precious term of endearment. He refers to them as his little children, kind of giving a, a, a note of immaturity to them, in my opinion. You are God, little children, and have overcome them. The them refers back 
to these false spirits. And the false ex spirits that exist today. In the, in the sphere of your religious influence, you are going to come into contact with these false spirits. Be it TV, be it radio, be it a DVD. You're going to come into contact with them. A believer, a follower of Yeshua, has, and it's in the perfect tense, so it's not just past, it's ongoing, have and continue to overcome them. And he uses this language again in chapter 5, verse 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You're an overcomer. John uses that language. Jesus uses that language through John to the churches. In Revelation 2 and 3. Suffice to say. He uses kind of a veiled reference here. But I believe he's using it in reference to the Holy Spirit. Because he who is in you. He who is in you. I want you to think about that. And I don't understand it. I, when I try to process it through a finite mind, I can't. I don't understand how he can be in you and me and over in China, my fellow brothers and Christians there in the Middle East, in Africa, South America, with every genuine believer. How can the Holy Spirit pull that off? Well, we're not God. And we don't understand fully. But be assured, Jesus promised, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The apostles got that a prom, prom, promise initially, but the church at large, the church in extension that has existed from its inception has the promise of the Spirit. We don't wait to get it through some act of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's nonsense. You get it in full measure. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, Paul writes, he's none of his. <laughs> It's that clear. The Spirit of God comes into His people. And He is the one who is greater. I think that's why Solomon says, Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your path. You don't lean to yourself and your own skills, your own rationale. We use it, don't get me wrong, but you lean on the Lord. Lean on Him. He's greater than he who is in the world. Whether he be Satan who animates this spirit of Antichrist through himself and his demons, his cohorts, 
or these false teachers themselves. He is greater than all of this because he is God, the Spirit. He's in you. You are of God. In contrast, they, the false spirit, and it, it finds its expressions in, in multitudes of ways. There are many false religions, cultic religions, non-Christian religions, and it has a broad spectrum of manifesting itself in the world from things that are totally pagan to those which are quasi-Christian, and yet because they have error in it, they are pagan in essence. They are of the world. They're of this world, this world system that lies in the wicked one. Therefore, they speak of the world. That's where they draw their resources. Whether it's within themselves or whether it's in the writings of men, that's where they go. The only place we can go fully and completely and purely for our doctrine is in this book. That's why I like to stick with the book. It's not that I don't read other Christian literature. I do that in preparation for a message. But I stick with the book. That's our measure. That's our plumb line. We measure it against the Word of God. They don't have that bearing. And then it says, tragically, the world hears them. They perk up their ears. This whole woke movement, I can't believe how it's infected the church and affected society. How's that happen? Through some spirit of antichrist and spirit of deception that has infected our institutions of higher learning so that the motto of, of Harvard, which is Veritas, the truth, seeking the truth, uh, that's, that's been set aside. Wow, there's all this intersectionality and environmentalism and diversity and, and on and on the list goes. It's, it's all a product of the spirit of Antichrist and churches have embraced it, sadly. I read of one church, Baptist church in Maryland, I believe it was, or Virginia, it was on the east where they had a drag queen come in and put a, a, some kind of show on the, on the stage for the people. Uh, that's a sad reality. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Profoundly and greatly, the apostles, the prophets in the early New Testament church, the pastors, the elders, the leaders in the early church were of God. Many of our pastors, many of our leaders, we don't have the apostles with us. The legacy of the apostles is this, and especially the New Testament. That's the legacy of these men. They have left for us, and they've left to us a book that defines our faith. Amen? Amen. It defines our faith. 
They're of God. Thank God for those who are standing in the pulpit this day for the truth and who are of God. And he who knows God, that's the language that Jesus used in his intercessory high priestly prayer. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That is a knowledge of relationship entering into that full knowledge of God himself, being in him and he in us. He who knows God hears him. And that would be the category of those who are of God. Verse 4, you are of God, you hear us. He who is not of God doesn't hear us. There's in that preposition again. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The incarnation of the Son of God is orthodox. It's orthodoxy, not covering every point of orthodoxy, but you can't deny it. You can't say it's unimportant. It doesn't exist. It's beyond my comprehension to believe. No such thing happened as the virgin birth. That's hogwash. It's hogwash. In Christendom, there are those who are duped, and those who are, there are those who are following the truth. One writer, he was a 18th, 19th century man. He said, a man of correct insight among those who are duped. I love this imagery. Among those who are duped and deluded resembles one whose watch is right. His watch is right. It's, it's, it's ticking, it's on time. While all the clocks in the town give the wrong time. He alone knows the correct time. But of what use is this to him? The world works. The world work is guided by the clocks that show the wrong time. That's the world that we live in. This is our clock. It's the clock of orthodoxy. Another writer said, For the truth teller and the truth seeker, indeed the whole world, has very little liking. He is always unpopular. And not infrequently, his unpopularity is so excessive that it endangers his life. Run your eye back over the list of martyrs, lay and clerical. Nine-tenths of them stood accused of nothing worse than honest efforts to find out and to announce the truth. <laughs> there are two tellers. And, and we have a shortage of them today in the church. 
because it's more convenient to go along with the spirit of the age. I hope as this recording goes out that it might have some impact because I do post it on YouTube, I post it on Sermon Audio, and then I post it on our Facebook. I have a, we have a church web page on Facebook. I post it there. And I get hits from people, but I hope this gets a measure of hits out there. John Huss, the martyr, kind of the pre-reformer before Luther came along, John Hush, he made this exhortation. He said, seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Teach the truth. Love the truth. Abide by the truth. And defend the truth unto death. That's our calling. May this Advent season be a wake-up call to bring us back to the truth of what happened in that stall and in that manger when God came into this world in the form of human flesh to die for my sins and your sins. God help us. God help us. God help me. Even if it costs me my life, even if it costs me imprisonment, may I stand with truth unto death. Are you willing to die for it? The Apostle Paul was. He says, I count not my life dear unto myself. I finish my course. May we hear in those days when we stand before our king and our judge, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You've been entrusted with that which is small, but you've multiplied it. You've used it for my glory. I've never approached the Advent season quite like this one with these precious nuggets and precious, precious passages from this epistle. But they just stood out to me and said, I need to speak on these things during this Advent season. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. We'll have a Christmas Eve service. And I hope we can all rejoice in that weekend of celebration with family, but most importantly, celebrating the Advent of our Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, how we thank you for the truth of God, that somebody spoke it to us. The gospel of truth is called... And you opened our eyes and gave us understanding of who Jesus was. And we embraced him fully and totally. And we've grown and increased in our knowledge of God. I pray that that might still be our goal, our aspiration in life. To be different tomorrow than we are today, spiritually. Different next year than we were this year. Give us grace to face the future by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.